0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. As I mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday. You may remember uh, right after the COVID lockdown a couple years ago, the first time we reassembled was on Pentecost Sunday. And that message is in the archives, probably, if you want to check it out, you probably can. I only mention it because in that message, I said a little more than I'm going to today about the Feast of Pentecost, the date, the origins, and all that. That's not the direction we're going today. I'm going a little more straightforward about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and probably using that as a launching pad for a series on the gifts of the Spirit. All right? I'm going to read a passage, and this is a short message. I know we've had a lot going on already, but I think this is a short message. (laughs) I should should always put that caveat in there, because I don't preach them until I'm up here. I'm going to read a passage from the Gospel of John, but before I do, I need to point out some things. I know this is by way of reminder for most of you, but you know that almost the last half of the book of John, like chapters 12 through 20, all take place during the last week of Jesus' life. All the Gospels put uh, quite an emphasis. Uh, most of them donate uh, between a quarter and a third of the book to Passion Week. This is a pretty important phase of uh, Jesus' ministry. But John, by the time you're in chapter 12, uh, three years have passed, and we are in the last week, and then the last chapter picks up with some post-resurrection stuff. But 12 through 20 is all during that last week And that's important, it's super important, because it means that what we're going to read here today takes place after the disciples had had three years of being discipled by Jesus. They had seen countless healing miracles. They had seen many, many, many demons cast out. They'd seen people raised from the dead. Uh, They'd seen him feed a crowd of thousands, miraculously, twice, twice. They saw the calming of the storm. They saw the walking on the water. They had even seen the transfiguration on the mount. I mean, an open vision of Jesus. Seeing Jesus in the air, in his glorified state with Moses and Elijah. And hearing the literal voice of God. Not only that, they themselves had participated in some of these miracles. They had cast out demons working alongside Jesus, and being sent out by Jesus. They had healed the sick. Peter walked on water. Remember that. He didn't walk long, but he did. He took however many steps he took. It was that many more than I have ever taken on the water, and probably most of you too. Not only that, think about the times he would spend teaching these parables, and then he would pull the disciples close, and they were privy to deeper explanations of his teachings, his sermons, his parables. And they were in almost constant, intimate fellowship with Jesus. They were being expertly and thoroughly trained, mentored, and prepared for ministry. Now we come to this last week, and now Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death and his departure. He washes their feet, he identifies his betrayer, at least to John, and he gives them the new commandment. Remember what it is? Love one another as I have loved you. Then he begins to speak of his departure, and we'll pick it up here in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. John 14.12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that, my Father may, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Skip over to, uh, we're still in chapter 14, pick it up in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Please notice it says he. I know it's tough because it's always usually the Holy Spirit. And so there's a tendency, even though we know better, to refer to the Holy Spirit as it. And even when you think of the outpouring, it's like God pouring something on us. But the Holy Spirit is... Uh, member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a he. Uh, I remember having an interesting discussion with uh, with a Jehovah's Witness about this very thing and because they don't believe in Trinitarianism and and they, they said, and, and they aren't the only ones, it's, it's just ha- this happened to be a Jehovah's Witness who I was talking to, they're not the only ones who think this way, That the Holy Spirit is not really God. It's just the energy of God. It's God's active force. It's something God has, something he uses in us, uh, and something that we can experience. But it's, but, and so when I pointed out this scripture, even in their translation, it says he, 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 him all the way through. I said, well, this is a who. This is a person. This is not a thing. And I think the answer they gave me was something like, well, it's kind of like when you call a ship She. You know, I took her out uh, on a voyage, you know. It's like, no, that's really not what this is saying here. So this is not just figurative language. Anyway, let's uh, pick this up now. Go to John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, you can only imagine sorrow has filled their heart. This is the best thing they have ever experienced, being with Jesus these three years. Verse 7, nevertheless, and you should highlight this if you haven't, and you can't highlight it on the screen. It's just one more reason to bring your Bibles to church with you. Uh, you can highlight it on your screen, I'm sure. But Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come... He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own, on his own authority, but whatever he hears He will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now, this is the part I really wanted you to see. Of all the things that the disciples were required to do, of all the things that the disciples uh, had the privilege to do, the most important requirement and the greatest privilege was to be with Jesus. You hear that? The disciples were privileged to witness and do a lot of things. And they were required to do a lot of things. But the first thing that they were required to do was to be with Jesus. And the greatest privilege they had was to be with Jesus. They had been with him for these years. Now, please understand, because I know we've spoken about this many, many times, how they had this wrong idea about the restoration of the kingdom. That running through the back of their minds this whole time was, once they recognized and were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, their vision was, he's the one. At some point, he's going to truly manifest himself, and he is going to be the next King David, He's going to throw Rome off our backs, and he's going to elevate Jerusalem and all of Israel back to its rightful place at the top of the heap in the nations. But at the same time, they simply loved him. They loved being with him. They loved being taught by him. And this is why this is a tough, tough moment for them. They had, remember, they had left everything to follow him. And now he's saying, I'm leaving. And you can't follow me where I'm going. This is the worst news they could imagine. And he tells them, What? But this is to your advantage. That's a weird thing to hear in that moment, isn't it? It's probably the hardest thing for them to believe in this whole discussion is when Jesus said, It's really the best thing for you, that I go away. And it's not this. It's not something as, everybody, we go through this when we grow up. As we enter adulthood, as as we take on different missions and and accomplish achievements in life, there comes a time where there's a breaking away. There's this independence where you're never going to grow. You're never going to develop until, you know, you cut the strings, you know, spread your wings, kicked out of the nest, and you've you've got to make it on your own or you'll never make it. And Jesus is not saying, look, I've been with you for three years. I've taught you everything I know, and now it's good for you. Now go sink or swim. That's not what he's saying at all. He's very specific about why it is good for him to go. He's saying, the reason it's good for me to go is because of who's coming when I do. I'm going, and I'm going to send somebody else. I've been with you, and he's been with you, too, whether you realize it or not. But he is going to be in you. And because of that, the works that I do, you will do also. And greater works than these. Now, all this, all these things Jesus said about the Holy Spirit during the week before his crucifixion are super important to remember when we finally get to the book of Acts. And we'll go ahead and go there. In Acts chapter 1, We will read, beginning in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, this is his intro. He's saying, look, all these things that uh, that I wrote back in the Gospel of Luke, I'm continuing now, but this, he's giving us the starting point. He ministered, he died, he was resurrected, and then for 40 days after the resurrection, he continued to speak to his disciples. He was seen by many, and then... We'll pick it up in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. When did they hear it? Well, Back in John 14, 15, and 16. We just read about that stuff, right? For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still have this on their mind, right? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, you know, I think you know, that they had already been entrusted with the Great Commission. He had already told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. But now he's telling them, after all this training, after the resurrection, after all this, don't start yet. Wait. This word power. You remember when Jesus sent the 70 out to do ministry? We just talked about that. How they went out uh, to do ministry, two by two, and Jesus didn't go with them. He sent them. And they came back, and you remember how excited they were? Lord, even the devils are subject to us when we speak in your name. They had power. Why did they have power? Because Jesus delegated them, uh, delegated his authority. Power can mean authority. By the power vested in me, by the state of Illinois, by the United States government, in this case, by God. Jesus had power and he delegated, through that power, he delegated his authority. So when they spoke in Jesus' name, the demons had to obey and come out. Sickness had to go. They healed people. They cast out demons and they came back all excited about it. But this word power is not authority. This word is, anybody know that Greek word? Dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. It's power. It's inherent power. It's real power, energy, strength, ability. And he says, this is what you will receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We will have the power of the Holy Ghost in us, and it's the same Holy Ghost, and therefore the same Holy Ghost power that was in Jesus. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in us. And I'm getting ahead of myself just a little. Once again, I've said this a dozen times, dozens of times during an altar call, but I want us to, I want to work it into the sermon today so we can think about it a little, little more deeply for a moment. These people, 120 of them, have lived and ministered alongside Jesus for three years, maybe three and a half years. Twelve of them have been right in the thick of practically everything Jesus has done. They had been trained. They had come to know Jesus in ways that it's hard for us to imagine. And there is no disagreement among any scholars that I can find that these men were already born again. Jesus breathed on them. Do you remember? Breathed on them the breath of life. Everybody, Almost everybody agrees. This is when they, be, they became regenerate. Born again, saved. These were Christian men already. They weren't waiting on salvation. They weren't waiting on a conversion. They weren't waiting for the new birth. They were born again uh, converts waiting for someone else. So Jesus tells them to wait. After he had saved them, after he had commissioned them, he says, wait for the power to do what I've called you to do, what I've commissioned you to do. You know how important it is. We've done some of it together, but I'm leaving, and you need to wait until you can do what I've commanded you to do. Now we go to Acts chapter 2, and we are 10 days after the ascension. We didn't read the rest of Acts chapter 1, but what he says is, they, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom? Uh, it's not for you to know when that, any of these other things are going to happen. All I'm telling you right now is you, you wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. For when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you're going to have power. And then, while he was still speaking, he's taken up into heaven, and they're staring up in the sky. Two angels say, what do you standing around here for and staring at the sky. When he comes back, he's going to come back the same way. You're not going to miss it. So they gathered together here in Acts chapter 2, and we will start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Again, this is 10 days later. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. Now, I want to look at a couple of details here before I move on to what I believe is the most important part of this message. This sound, uh, it says when this sound occurred, all these people in the city gathered. What sound are we talking about? We're talking about the sound of the rushing mighty wind. Because that's what it says. There was a sound as of a rushing, rushing mighty wind. You've heard me say this before. Uh, I think it, was the, it sounded like an explosion. That's what a rushing mighty wind sounds like. If it comes all of a sudden, if I blew in this microphone, which the sound people don't let me do, uh, I would demonstrate that for you. But it's just this, you can just imagine. So they hear this noise, they run, and when they get there, what they find, the next sound they hear is the disciples out there speaking in tongues that they understood but they're, look, they're, they're putting two and two together. It's like, these, we, we know we know what these people look like. We know where they're from. These are all Galileans. They're all from the same region. How are they speaking so many different languages? I can hear them in my, I can hear them in my language. I can hear them in my language. They were speaking languages, languages that were known to men. And they didn't understand it. What could it mean? I need you to understand something. We're going to talk about tongues in detail probably next week, but certainly at some point over the next few weeks in this series. But I want to mention a couple things about it here. This is a record, I believe an accurate record, of what happened on the day of Pentecost. It is not necessarily a blueprint or an instruction manual for what or how it must happen every time. What I mean by that is there are some who claim that when we speak in tongues, it doesn't necessarily have to be a known language on earth. It could be tongues of angels. It could be a tongue that's only understood in heaven. And the scriptural reference for that is in First uh, Corinthians 13, when Paul says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels. There are some who, who believe that Paul's speaking a little bit of hyperbole here. To me, it doesn't matter a bit. All I'm saying is when people say, well, when you speak in tongues, scripturally, it should be a known tongue. And that's a pretty, I don't know, I I don't think it's a hill to die on, all right? Uh, But again, at this moment, this is what happened. Um, The main thing is that uh, when you're speaking in tongues, when somebody is speaking in tongues, tongues is just another word for languages, of course. It's a supernatural phenomenon wherein the speaker does not know the language. It doesn't matter if anybody else does. Now, the drunkenness, this is the other reference here. You know, they say, ah, they're full of new wine. And then Peter gets up and says, uh, men, th- th- these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This was a mocking, I'm not sure, how do I want to phrase this? I, when, when the guy said, look, they're full of new wine, he was being dismissive of whatever was happening. Could it be that they did appear drunk? Could be. Does it necessarily mean that? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. When Peter said, they're not drunk as you suppose, I think he's giving an almost playful response. Come on, it's only nine in the morning. You can't come up with a better explanation than that. What, what I'm, t- what I'm uh, trying to tiptoe around here is, again, when we talk about the blueprint idea. Uh, listen, I've been in meetings and most of you have too where there's a manifestation of the tangible presence of God. And many of you have experienced what can only be described as being drunk in the spirit. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you're unable to stand up straight. you got a goofy smile on your face. Sometimes there's uncontrollable laughter that goes along with it. And you know me well enough to know that's not the most comfortable place for me it's not my wheelhouse necessarily Uh, i have to try hard not to fight against certain things when god when god is moving certain ways all i want to say about it right now is let's let's be careful about two extremes number one is don't say that god cannot ever be in this stuff there is a difference between something that is anti-biblical, and something that is extra-biblical. I don't think it's ever safe to say that God can never move in ways, do things, say things even, or manifest himself in ways other than what he already has in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a pretty big box, but you don't want to put God in a box. You don't want to say, God never said that before, God never did that before, God never manifested that particular way before. Therefore, he never can, never will. I don't think it's it's a safe place to, God is God. At the same time, though, he will never manifest himself in a way or speak something or do anything that contradicts what's in the Bible. We understand that, right? When somebody tells you, I heard from God to do this, and the next thing out of their mouth is rank sin according to the Bible, they didn't hear from God. The other extreme is to say, they all got drunk in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, so we should have that manifestation too when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If we don't get drunk, because clearly they were, and even if they were is what I'm saying, I don't think you can absolutely say they were, I mean drunk in the Spirit, but even if they were, that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how it's going to happen when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. More important is this, that what they were speaking when speaking in tongues was they were declaring the wonderful works of God. I think the picture here is one of almost a spontaneous praise service. They were filled with the Spirit and then boldly just speaking all of the good things God was doing, had done in their lives. And that's important because some claim and a lot of these claims come from people who are cessationists, who, know, who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, particularly tongues, are past. They say, well, the reason tongues was in manifestation at all was so that the gospel could be preached more clearly, so that the disciples didn't have to spend years and years learning languages and then going to these other countries. God simply enabled them to speak without being trained in these languages. They just opened their mouth, and the gospel was preached, as it was on the day of Pentecost, except they weren't preaching the gospel. Peter eventually did, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. But they were simply saying the wonderful works of God, like we do during praise and worship, like we do during testimonies. Okay? These things were just pouring out of their mouths. They weren't preaching the gospel. Now, uh, I think, in fact, there's no record, biblical, uh, any biblical record of that ever happening. You know, when, they, when, they got, when they went out to fulfill the Great Commission, There's no record of anybody ever preaching in tongues. All right? I think a good takeaway from this is if we are bold enough, and we can be even casual in our boldness. It doesn't need to be screaming and shouting and getting somebody's attention. I mean just through the course of our days in our conversation, if we are bold enough to always talk about how God is important in our lives, what good things God has done for us, We'd be very surprised at how receptive people are going to be to that. How much attention it gets and how big an impact it has on people around us. This is a, I'm going to chase this rabbit for just a second, and I've chased it before. This is super important. Young people, especially I'm talking to you, but I'm not just talking to you. When we're talking about relationships, um, friendships and romantic relationships, I always want to know is this person you're hanging out with, is this person you're seeing, are they a believer? Yeah, they're a believer. They're saved, yeah. They've confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord, yes. Do you pray together? Well, no. Do you talk about Jesus? Do you talk about the Bible? No. I've heard this, I'm not making this up, I've heard this dozens of times, if not hundreds over the years. It's like somebody's raised in the church, and it's like, well, they know it's important if they're going to date somebody particularly. Well, it needs to be a believer. So they get that checked off. But Jesus is nowhere in the relationship. Now, what do you have in common? Well, we like the same movies, we like the same food, Uh, we like the same music, and these are the things we talk about. Uh, We like doing the same activities. Nothing wrong with those things, but theoretically, if if you're a Christian, the most important thing in your life is what? It's Jesus. And if you're with a Christian, the most important thing in that person's life is also Jesus. Isn't it odd that two people who share the most important thing in their life never talk about it? That this is never part of the conversation? Never part of the relationship? What does this tell me? That Jesus really isn't the most important person to either one of you. You know what's important to people just by being around them. You know what hobbies they have. You know what interests they have. You spend five seconds in my office, you're going to know I'm a hot sauce freak. These things come out. And this is what happened. They were filled, and we will see through the course of this, I believe, uh, uh, this series on the Spirit and His gifts, you will see that boldness is one of the side effects of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. as one of the ways God answers their prayers. And one of the things they specifically prayed for. But here they were. Hiding, hunkered down, whatever, they were waiting in this upper room, r- sound of a mighty rushing wind, they're all filled with the Spirit, and they start speaking the wonderful works of God. In tongues, in this case. And they ga- gather this crowd, and then, the important part. Peter gets up, and he does preach. Now that the crowd is here, he turns and addresses them. And we, he, Here's how I'm not going to read the sermon, I'm going to read the wrap-up in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls were added to them. They went from 120 to 3,000 on the first day of church. That's pretty good church growth right there. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, stay here until you receive power to be my witnesses. They had passion. They had love. They had been saved. They did not have power. We literally, we now literally cannot, just on the strength of our natural talents, on the strength of our passion, our social standing, any of those things, we cannot complete the mission that Christ gave us. We might accomplish some things. We might convince some people. But remember this. This sermon was preached in an atmosphere that was and remained for some time hostile to their message. Hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can empower us to do that And cause people to respond that way. Praise and worship team, come on up here. And you can stand with me. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving. And I know you're sad. I know you're sad. Your heart's heavy because I've just spoken this to you. But believe me, you're going to be glad that I'm leaving. Because when I leave, I'm sending someone else. The helper, when he comes, he's going to lead you and guide you all. Truth, he's going to cause everything I've taught to you, even if you think you can't remember it at the right time, at the necessary moment, he's going to bring it all back to your memory. How many many of you have ever experienced that? If you'd asked somebody, hey, what does the Bible say about this? I don't know. But then in the moment you needed it, suddenly you remembered what the Bible said about that. Oh, yeah, Scripture says this. He'll bring these things back to your memory. All the things that he's going to do, and he's going to give them power. Power, dunamis power. To go out and fulfill the great commission. But he says the Holy Spirit, whom what? Whom the world cannot receive. Can the world receive Jesus? Yes. Jesus, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the world certainly can receive Jesus. The world can't receive the Holy Spirit. Only believers, only Christians can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you got saved, you confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, Romans chapter 10, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I guess let's start there. Have you done that? And if you haven't, will you? I'm going to open up this altar here in just a second. And if you need to make Jesus Christ your Lord, I want you to come up here boldly while we sing. And I'm going to pray with you. If you have done that, God, Pastor Scott, I, I said that prayer years ago and I've never renounced it. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Are you fulfilling the Great Commission? Well, that's really hard. I try. I try to, I try to share my faith when I can. Uh, maybe you need power. So let me ask you this. Have you ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit? These disciples were saved on the day of Pentecost. For 10 days they waited, and when the Holy Spirit was poured out in that moment, they suddenly were flooded with boldness and opportunities. And the church grew, not just because of their passion, not just because of their love, but because of the power that can only come when the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, fills us and resides in us. Ah, does it mean I have to speak in tongues? It means you get to speak in tongues. You don't go to heaven and you don't get, none of this happens just because you speak in tongues. Speak, speaking in tongues, I guess, we'll talk about the details of tongues later. I'm not going to worry about that right now. I want to know, do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you going to deny what Jesus clearly said? if his disciples who physically were with him and ministered alongside him were commanded to stay in Jerusalem before they said a word, before they went out and fulfilled one word of the Great Commission, until they received the Holy Spirit, what do we think we're going to do without the Holy Spirit? Have you been struggling to fulfill the call that God has on you in your particular arena of combat? Power up. Be filled. I'm going to pray we're going to start singing. We start singing, you come up here, you let me know, Scott, I'm up here to be saved, or Scott, I'm up here to be baptized in the Spirit, or hey, I'm up here for the two-for-one Sunday. You can be baptized, like he said, repent, be baptized for the remission of sin, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached the 2 for that, that, that very first uh, Sunday, did a first uh, Pentecost sermon, right? So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Ghost. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us, making salvation available to the world. We, your children, thank you for making the Holy Ghost available to us. Father, it's my prayer. I believe it's a prayer of every spirit-filled believer in here that one person doesn't walk out of this room unsaved or unfilled. So speak to every person here. Let them know what they need. Father, reveal their need for salvation if they need saved. Reveal their need for an infilling and baptism of the Holy Spirit if that's never been a decision they made. But you're the only one who can do this work. You're the only one who can speak to hearts, Lord God. So thank you for speaking now in Jesus' name. Amen. You desire to be saved. You desire to be filled. Just come up here and let me pray with you. Amen. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.